The thrill and excitement of March Mania is here, and DraftKings Sportsbook, one of America's top-rated sportsbook apps, is giving new customers a shot to turn 5 bucks into $150 instantly in bonus bets with any college basketball bet. You can find all the lines and available odds, of course, at the DraftKings Sportsbook app. North Carolina listeners, don't forget, DraftKings Sportsbook is now live in your state. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app and use code SBNFL. New customers can bet 5 bucks to get $150 instantly in bonus bonus bets only at DraftKings Sportsbook with code SBNFL. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 8778-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash bball for eligibility, deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. to the Nick and Nolan show a Buffalo rumblings podcast with your host Nick Bat. the prime minister of Sweden visited Washington today and my tiny little nipples went to France and Bruce Nolan yo brethren what up with thee Welcome, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us for this edition of the Nick and Nolan Show, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm one of your two co-hosts, Nick Bat. You can find me on Twitter at N-I-C-K-B-A-T. And along with me, as always, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter at Bruce Exclusive. If ever there was a time for good morrow. Morrow, Abbott. Good morrow. Welcome, Abbott. Good morrow. Hello, Abbott. Good morrow. Hey, Abbott. I hate that guy. If Good ever, morrow, everyone. If ever there was a time for a cheerful, jubilant "Good Morrow," this is the time. Good morrow to you, Nick. Good morrow to you, Bruce. We have come a long way in a week. We have come a whole lot of a long way from very skeptical and critical about what this team could actually put together on a game day. Right, I think that's. I think that everybody always would would affirm the abilities of the individual players and the intelligence of the coaches and all of that. But the Bills were yet to package that into a Sunday performance that didn't seem to have some really big asterisks. What we wanted was we wanted a complete game against a good team, and we hadn't gotten it because when I had we had opportunities for that against the Patriots, it didn't happen. And we had another opportunity against for that against the Eagles. And to a lesser extent, we had an opportunity against the Browns. This is the first time we got what we wanted. We got a complete game against a good team. And it just happened to be also on national television this, what is it? This, in front of millions of people. The second most watched football game of the season, aside from the Super Bowl, maybe some playoff games, but like verifiably the most watched football game of the season outside of the Super Bowl. And perhaps the people who are decision makers at the TV organizations and the networks thought that people's interest might be piqued enough 
that they would like to give us another opportunity at a large audience. And so we have been flexed two weeks from this weekend. We are now the Sunday night game. In general, I think that the idea would have to be that people are now interested. People are now interested in the 9-3 and three Buffalo Bills. They're interested in Josh Allen. They're interested in the Sean McDermott coach team. And they people want to see how we finish. So we get the opportunity to showcase that. Both in the, the, the Patriots game where we're playing on Saturday and now the night game against the Steelers. So we have four games left, two of which are going to be slotted for more viewers, which, again, not does not really compute. Does not compute. Does not compute. As someone who does not live in market, I will take all the national television games I can get because that just means that I don't have to watch it on my phone or at the bar and I can watch it on normal television. Yeah. So I'm all about it. Yeah, yeah. Anything to help me avoid people, I'm in. I'm in. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I guess we should talk about the football game. I mean, maybe. (laughs) The win over the Cowboys really, really moved the needle for people. Maybe, I don't know how to... The Cowboys, you know, we we walked in thinking that they were going to do what the Browns did to us because they were a high-end talent team. You know, the top end of their roster was better than the top end of our roster. That was also the issue we ran into against the Browns and against the Eagles. And that caused us issues. Yeah? Yeah. The difference is they have Jason Garrett, and he did the thing that we were talking that he might do, which was come in with an inexplicably dumb offensive game plan. Yeah. Ezekiel Elliott averaged six yards a carry and barely saw the ball in the second half. It was not good. It was not great, Bob. Not great, Bob. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's... They literally played directly into our hands. Yeah. I, whether they did or they didn't, I mean, I guess the outcome moves the needle the same way because it is one of those games where the the feeling, the opportunity to be embarrassed, that, that, that opportunity was high because of the visibility. Sure. And we didn't do that. We put them down, you know, took control of the game and didn't really give it back. I mean, they scored on the first drive and then they scored in what was sort of an extended garbage time because with, you know, about 10 minutes left in the game, it just really felt like there was no way that they were going to get three scores, get the possessions back the way that we were able to possess the ball and run the clock when we wanted to. And it worked to the extent that we got the ball with seven minutes left and said, that's, that's it, everybody. That's that we're all done here. So, very impressive. Yeah, the opportunity to be embarrassed was high. And I feel like, you know, a lot of people are talking about this game compared to the game where we beat the Dolphins and we came back and the Bengals beat the Ravens and they sent us to the playoffs and the feeling that you have. And I would argue that the feeling is 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 good. You know, they're both great, but that they're different aspects of good. I think that in 2017, it was almost a matter of relief over optimism. I don't think a lot of people in 2017 thought Tyrod was the guy. Even after we made the playoffs. When he goes to Jacksonville and has the game that he has in Jacksonville and had had games during that year that has caused Sean McDermott to bench him for Nathan Peterman during a playoff run. Remember the Saints game? I don't think anybody thought Tyrod was the guy in 17, even after we made the playoffs. And because of that, I don't know if there was the same level of optimism that there is now. 
I could make an argument that what we're feeling now is better than what we felt in 17 because 17 was relief. 17 was, thank God, it's over. 17 was, we don't have that hanging over our head. 17 was Steve Young saying, can someone get that monkey off my back? Someone take the monkey off my back, please. When he finally won the Super Bowl and didn't have to worry about being the constant comparisons to Joe Montana. 17 was relief. What we're feeling now is not relief. What we're feeling now is looking forward, not looking backwards. Not, oh my gosh, this many years of misery, this drought is over. Look at what we've been through. Now it's, oh my gosh, look at what's coming. Because of Josh Allen, because of this coaching staff, because you think, guys, is Josh Allen the guy? Like, is Sean McDermott the guy? And so that feeling, that they're both positive, but the feeling is so different. Even though it's both positive, it's so different from each other. And I could argue that what we're feeling now is better. Now, I can say that because we've ended the drought. I can say that. If we hadn't ended the drought in 17, then obviously I wouldn't have that frame of reference. But I would argue that what I'm feeling now is better. Now, it might not be the sudden explosion of tear-inducing relief the way it was when we found out Terry Pagula bought the bills and we weren't going to be leaving Buffalo or when we ended the drought where it's the build up, build up, build up, build up and then the sudden massive release of emotion that just relief comes over you. There are people crying. It's not that kind of emotion. It's a different level. It's optimism. And this optimism is warranted. It is. We're 9-3 and and we beat a good team. Are the Cowboys good? Yeah, the Cowboys are good. They're not great, but they're good. The question earlier this year was, are we a good team? And it was like, well, you know, every game we won was against, you know, kind of a bottom feeder. And that's not the case anymore. I don't know if we're a great team, but I think we can answer definitively at this point. The Bills are a good team. And I think that the opportunity... Whether the Cowboys are good or not, the opportunity for us to prove more of what we are comes in the next three weeks because we will we will have the the Baltimore game, the New England game in New England, and then the Pittsburgh game on a big stage, and all of those will again either add cement to the foundation or they will do something else to how we think about this team currently. I think the Bills could lose to the Ravens and the Patriots and still be a good team because those teams are great teams. Now, obviously, if we get blown out by 50 points, that's a different story. But if we're competitive games and we lose to the Ravens and the Patriots, we're still a good team. It's just that those teams happen to be great teams. I think that's maybe what's changed a little bit is the prospect of a blowout or the prospect of us not looking competitive seems to have left for some people. Yeah, I would be shocked. And that's the fear that a lot of people had about the, the Cowboys game. Don't get blown out. That was the worry. And that nothing, you know, the exact opposite happens almost. So, yeah, it, it, the whole thing is interesting. I have given myself over to the positive emotions. It's just when I think about it and I try to explain why I feel that way, I, I get hung up a little bit with how much the Cowboys 
like how formidable of an opponent they are. We thought they were a formidable opponent. And again, we know about their top end talent. But like you said, they had a game plan that played into our strengths rather than vice versa. And you just wonder if they maybe put their best foot forward, would, would, would we feel significantly different if the same team just did something else? But I guess you can't really do that because the like whether or not a team decides to do what they're good at or not is part of who that team is. Correct. So the coaching staff's part of the team too. Yeah. We think of the team as being players on paper, but the team is the front office to the I mean, it's the organization, right? The, the the front office to the coaching staff, to the water boy, to the offensive quality control assistant, to the starting quarterback, to the third string defensive lineman. That's the whole team. And the Cowboys have a talented roster and a bad coach. But we have a better coach and a less talented roster. It reminds me of uh, Wade Phillips talking about his dad, about Bum Phillips. This is a this was a generation of football ago. A lot of people might not even really know of Bum Phillips as a coach. He was a coach for the Houston Oilers for a long time. He wore jeans and like a cowboy shirt and a, and a cowboy hat on the sidelines. He was not in your normal coach attire, whether it be the dress-up coaches of the 70s or the coaches in athletic gear now. He was his own animal. But he had some saying about how or the, Wade had a saying about Bum or Bum had a saying about himself. I could take your guys and you can have my guys, and I will beat you whether I have my guys against your guys or your guys against my guys. I will beat you either way. It was. It's a testament to how good of a coach Bum was perceived to be. I certainly am starting to think as though our coaching staff, under its current arrangement, is is really is really formidable. They're pretty good, high quality. They are high quality. They're unquestionably the best coaching staff we've had. Since Wade, Wade, unquestionably. I mean, I don't think it's in debate. I think this is markedly better. I think the the 2004 team that lost to the Steelers third stringers was a more talented team on paper than we are with Bledsoe and McGahee and Takeo Spikes roaming the middle and London Fletcher and Lawyer Malloy. And it was just, yeah, it was a good team. Sam Adams. Ted Washington, that was a great team. But the coaching staff wasn't as good as what we have now. And there was some question as to whether or not the 9-7 and seven team in 17 was a better coaching job or the 6-10 and 10 team in 18 was a better coaching job because of how poor that roster was in 18. And what you're showing is if you give Sean McDermott reasonable talent, not elite talent, just reasonable talent, he can he can give you a, a competitive team. Yeah. Well, the optimism, like you said a few minutes ago, is really all about Josh Allen. It's all about whether or not people have whether or not he can combine. This is so we'll call back to what our previous conversation has been, right? There have been two kinds of Josh that we have seen in his tenure as a Buffalo Bill that are positive, that aren't just garbage can, you know, that aren't just not good. Dumpster fire, right? There's dumpster fire Josh. We don't want that. We don't want Green Bay Josh. We don't want first game, second half against the Chargers Josh. But at the end of last season, we had what you have affectionately coined YOLO Josh, which is just just fling it, 
run hurdle guys deep balls you know it, it's the the pass to the pass to Robert Foster across the field when you don't even really know how it left his hand because he was he was receiving contact as the ball is being released doesn't look physically possible there's that Josh and then there's the can't hit a deep ball for his life but the intermediate pass he's a different quarterback in the intermediate game he's literally a different quarterback than who people scouted coming out of Wyoming it's not even this it doesn't even compute like it's the same player in this short span of time for him to have the effectiveness that he does in the intermediate and short area field this year right so that that's what you you've called that doctor josh cuz he's being he's being surgical he's so precise and then if he were to somehow combine those two things, he would become Mega Josh. Activating Megazord Battle Mode. You tweeted that we had a sighting of Mega Josh against the Cowboys. Over nine yards per attempt, over 79% completion percentage, a touchdown passing, a touchdown rushing, and nary an interceptable throw. He fumbled the snap, but he picked it up and trucked the dude, so I'll forgive him a little bit for it. But can you name me a boneheaded throw he made? No. Can you name me a like a bad, like a legitimately bad throw he made? I don't think so. Okay, so that's Mega Josh, ladies and gentlemen. Well, it's you know, it's also unusual because even great quarterbacks have errant throws every game. Yeah. He had some decisions that were less than optimal. Sure. Which, if you really want a quarterback to go an entire game with no less than optimal decisions, I think your bar might be a little too high. But that was mega Josh, ladies and gentlemen. We had a discussion on here what was Josh's best game, and three of the four on the list were against the Dolphins. I contend to you that that was his best game regardless of the fantasy stat implication, and I don't think it was particularly close. Josh Allen consistently converted on third down, got the team into the right plays, made the right checks to the line, made good decisions. He made his offensive line look better. Listen to me. He made his offensive line look better. Last year, last year, Josh Allen played behind one of the worst offensive lines I've ever seen and looked in certain games like garbage because he was running around like a chicken with his head cut off. One of the things that created the origin story for YOLO Josh is we don't have a line, so (laughs) if it holds up, we'll throw it deep, and if it doesn't hold up, we run, right? That's one of the, it's the origin story of the supervillain that is YOLO Josh. He was so good with his pocket movement that he was making his line look better. His line didn't play great. But we don't remember a lot of those things because he was stepping up into the pocket. And the interior of his his front three played pretty well. The tackles, not, not great. Cody Ford didn't have a great game. But he made them look better. We've gotten to the point now where Josh Allen's making people look better. It was his best game that he's probably ever played in his life. At all. And I think that it's people want to assign something to that, that it was on the biggest stage of his life. That he's never seen before. What was the what was the most the most watched game 
that Josh Allen ever played before now? I I, I don't know. I, the I don't answer know. That. It was yeah. probably the probably a, a college bowl game. Probably a college bowl game, unless <clears throat> unless one of the random Sundays happened to do well because the Sunday night game last year he wasn't on because he he yeah. was out and Derek Anderson was in, and aside from that, it's all one o'clock p.m. Sunday games where the only people who are watching are local market people, and Josh Allen had all the reasons in the world for this game to not go great Bob. You know, what if the the you know the Cowboys got a really high-powered offense? What if they jump on him early and they force him to kind of throw his way back on a national stage against a really good pass rush with tackles who aren't great in the first time he's ever been on this? He had all the excuses lined out for him and said, I mean, yeah, there's excuses, but I'm going to grab the ball and I'm going to truck this dude. And then I'm going to get fourth down and I'm going to throw my shoulder out of the socket by punching the air. And if the ref steps in front of me, I'm going to knock him into next week. It was his best game. It wasn't close. I'm here for it. I think the two things that are most encouraging for me, and I haven't felt this way. This is all new. I don't know. I don't. I don't really know how to how to play the other half of this conversation because we haven't had a quarterback. I, I, as a fan, I was very optimistic about Trent Edwards. That was a long time ago. I was a lot younger, and I think that my ability to sophisticatedly talk about this in any way would would be hampered. You know, it would it was hamstrung compared to what we're doing right now. But I, I don't know what I don't know what to say aside from, again, I, the intermediate stuff. Like I do does I, I am speechless. I don't understand. He was not. This was not supposed to be an easy fix. This was a big problem. It was why people were down on him, right? I mean, it's a significant portion of why people were down on him. It was just flat-out inaccuracy. And maybe he his accuracy is still, what, zip code accuracy? It's what you say? Yeah, it, it's always going to be zip code accuracy. But it is... It's always the right zip code. <laughs> right, it's fine. It's, it's, the, it's the right half of the zip code. Accuracy is no longer a problem for Josh Allen as far as something that's holding him back. Accuracy will not be the reason that Josh Allen can't be a franchise quarterback. Yeah. The fact that I'm saying this to you is staggering. That's that's this again. I we say, I say we take a couple minutes every week and have this conversation because I can't let it go. Like if we did this every day, maybe by Thursday of the first week, I would be like, okay, everybody knows I will cool it. But like once a week, I will con- consistently put on these Josh Allen intermediate passing pants and just and just stomp around. I know it's your thing. Like you, that that's the. I, it, it's just it's not supposed to it, it's not supposed to be possible. It's not like the staggering, right? It's not supposed to be, this was not supposed to be so simple that he would progress this much this quickly. Is it simple? Or or are we in the midst of seeing something that's just unique? You and I had a discussion when Josh Allen got drafted. And and I've reiterated this, I think, a couple times since then. I am not arrogant enough to say this can't happen. It's not possible. So 
When we drafted Josh Allen, I was against the move. Not because it's physically impossible for Josh Allen to be a franchise quarterback. Because the the probability of it happening was so low that I wasn't comfortable with the odds. We're in the process of seeing, and that's the negative side to it. The negative side to it is it's so improbable. The positive spin on that is you need to listen to this. We are in the midst of seeing something that is unbelievably improbable. And that's awesome. Like now is that not the time to find the people who were anti-Josh Allen pick, right? And stomp all over them and say, ha you thought he'd suck. Now's not the time for that. Now's the time to go, ha-ha, look at what is happening here. Someone who a ton of people thought was going to suck doesn't suck. We're seeing something that I, I, I actually... I'm trying, I'm reaching, my brain is reaching for other examples because I'm such a draft junkie, right? And I'm like, ah, I can't think of a player who was this roundly criticized by the draft community at large who ended up being taken high and succeeding. Well, it's it, what's interesting to me the most about it. I mean, so let me, let me get these two things out. First of all, the intermediate passing game, that that's my that's my hill I want to die on. Bury me there. Scatter my ashes on that hill, please. Whether I die tomorrow or I die in 80 years, come back to this hill and scatter my ashes here. The two things that make that give me the most optimism about Josh Allen is the line of scrimmage play. I mean like it is I I don't know. I mean it, it's it's two two and a half steps behind Peyton Manning. I mean, I don't even know anybody else who's who is close to that lineup and change everything. Change he will he will change the protection. He will change multiple routes. He may change the entire play. I mean, he is doing a lot now. Now, granted, Brian Dable is in his ear. Literally, sometimes up until the snap, because they're snapping the ball with 15 seconds left, which means that Brian Dable is talking to Josh Allen through that entire change and probably telling him, "Okay, here's what the defense did. Go, go get him. You know, and that's, you know, awesome. Take advantage of that. Every team should be doing that. If it's that if if you can do that, you should be doing that. That's not to take anything away from Josh Allen. No, no, no. But like his in general, he's learning by doing. If nothing else, you have to understand. I mean, you would, everybody would have to admit, despite different learning styles and whatnot, with, with him doing what he's doing, this will be replicable on some level on his own because he's he's doing it. When Brian Dable makes a play call, and then as Josh Allen's walking to the line, he goes, "Hey, if they go zone, audible to this." Well, the next time Brian Dable makes that play call, he doesn't have to tell Josh Allen if they go zone, audible to this. He knows. Josh Allen's like, okay, well, if they go zone, I'm going to audible to this. Yeah, or the third or fourth or fifth time. I mean, like, it's, it's going to happen frequently. You right. Know? So, yes, that's probably happening. And then th- that's the big knock on Jared Goff. The big knock on Jared Goff is Sean McVay is holding his hand. My response to that is, that's fine, first off. And also, if the quarterback can have his hand held like that and not come away with any sort of meaningful long-term knowledge from that, then okay. 
by all means, let's let's do that. But it's not cheating. No. No one's cheating here. It's not cheating. No. So well, I don't know why we, you're not doing it. I don't know why everybody isn't doing this. Should we still fry, fire Brian Dable? I don't. Is that still a thing? I, I don't know. I haven't heard it in a oh, while. Oh man. Yeah. I don't know. It's you don't want it. You don't want us to drag the people who didn't like Josh Allen, but we will drag the people who wanted to fire Dable. So no. I, I, here's what I think. What I think is that we should recognize the fact that what we are seeing is so unbelievably improbable that we should realize that it's special i think here's my here's my comeback to that is that if it was so improbable i I don't think brandon bean thought it was improbable well of course he didn't think it was improbable and i think that that is where that is where a level of humility ought come i in my opinion because there's obviously some information. So two th- there's two possibilities, right? Let's if Josh Allen continues on this course, which is not a guarantee, right? So we we'll just lay that out. This is say we have more games like this and Josh Allen continues on this course. There are two options. One option is Brandon Bean saw exactly the same information that the draft community saw and came to a conclusion that nobody would agree with. Right. That he just he saw information and said, yeah, but and he chooses it. So he comes to a he comes to a conclusion that no one would endorse with the same data or he had some kind of information that we didn't. Yeah. So teams are always going to have medical information that we don't have. Hakeem Butler is a great example of that. And teams are always going to have interviews that we don't have. So. There's one thing that the draft community at large cannot get, and that is interviews and medical, things like coachability. So we, I've never seen a quarterback who was as bad as Josh Allen come out become as good as he is now. Even if he never got any better than he is right now, it's still an incredible testament to the development that he has done. That doesn't mean it's not possible for it to happen. Obviously, it's possible for it to happen. We're seeing it happen. It means we've never seen it before. And the fact that you've never seen it before means it's improbable. I guess I, I guess I get conf- I get conflicted because we talk about we have to reward process, not result. Right? Mm-hmm. That's one thing we've talked about previously. Mm-hmm. That the the process by which you make your decisions and you you do what you're doing, if the process is good, it ought to be applauded. If the process is bad, you can critique it. If the result ends up one way or another, but you have verifiable information that tells you the process was good or bad, you can lament the result or you can celebrate the result, but you kind of you know know you either got away with one or you got bad luck. What do we I, again? This is all assuming this continues. What do we say about Josh Allen and Brandon Bean? What we say about Josh Allen is that perhaps coachability is a bigger factor when you deal with someone who has minimal passing attempts and a, a very murky trajectory. That's what I think. What I think is if you have somebody who has 614 passing attempts coming into the NFL, which is like seven. Like, that's, that's nothing. 614 throws is literally nothing. When you have someone who has that few throws, maybe the things like coachability take on a more significant weight because if you think about it like a, like a, 
if you think about it like a line graph, what you're seeing, the data that you have, is such a small part that you have to extrapolate a lot more with someone like Josh Allen. And if you extrapolate a lot more, then things like organizational stability and prospect and individual coachability become bigger. That's what my takeaway is that, from the Joshua Allen story. That's what I was looking for. That's what I have been looking for, is what did we undervalue that Brandon Bean didn't, and what did he get right that we didn't see? I think what he got right that I, I don't want to speak for anybody else, sure, what sure, I sure. didn't see, right, is you hear stories all the time about people who are coachable and they're gym rats and they work really hard. How the heck was I supposed to know that Josh Allen could actually fix any of this crap? Everyone's like, oh, well, he's going to get better. And my response to that is always, how the heck do you know he's going to get better? Everyone just assumes every player is going to get better. Oh, he's always going to get better. That's not always true. Sometimes what you're seeing is as good as it's going to get. But that wasn't the case with Josh Allen. And so you can read all these fluff pieces that you want from local newspapers in Wyoming and Fresno newspapers about Fireball and about Josh Allen. But that doesn't... You read those fluff pieces about everybody. We had no way of knowing... That guy with the wonkiest freaking mechanics on lower body I've maybe ever maybe ever seen, right? He had some wonky ass shit going on, Nick. To, to get to where he is, yeah, for sure. And all of a sudden, right, he's not a pinpoint precision passer. He's a good passer. And I, I don't even know what to say. I mean, yeah, I, the, the other thing I was going to say that, that gives me hope aside from the line of scrimmage stuff is the even when he's running, even when he is out, the Cole Beasley throw on the sideline between three defenders, ridiculous. The camera angle, the one camera angle that somebody had is just, I mean, how he got it there. It wasn't the touchdown. It was a third down it conversion. Was, it was back in his own end zone. Yeah, yes, that's right. Cody Ford pushes Demarcus Lawrence wide. He steps up and then shifts right, right yeah. and then throws it sidearm, flicks it between two people to Cole Beasley on a mid-range crossing route, and he gets the first down and keeps the drive going. Yeah, I mean, just, you could say, I mean, you could say he's not pinpoint. That is a... That's a redonkulous throw, yeah, though. Yeah, that's crazy. That's crazy. Right? That's a redonkulous throw. I mean, just ludicrous. Yeah. You know, Spaceballs has ludicrous speed. Ludicrous speed. <gasps> ludicrous speed. Sir, we've never gone that fast before. I don't know if the ship can take it. What's the matter, Colonel Sanders? Chicken? That is ludicrous throw. <laughs> Josh Allen has ludicrous speed. Well, okay. Do you have other things you have to say? I mean, we could, we could just keep talking about how ridiculous this uh, it's is. It's just... I- we should stop. <laughs> we, we, we should stop because I'm starting to get stumbly. Yeah, okay. We will take a quick break. We will, we will gather ourselves. We will be back with you in just a moment. Welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us for this edition of the Nick and Nolan Show, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm Nick Bat. I'm Bruce Nolan. And we will move on from Josh Allen, although we could continue to talk about him. We will not. I'm sure he'll come up. Okay, so you talked about Sean McDermott, and you said that one of the things that perhaps needs to be taken into consideration when you are going to extrapolate out a person with Josh Allen's trajectory, I think was the word you used, one of the things you said was organizational stability. Mm -hmm. One of the things that can become a big thorn in the side of organizational stability is when a coach has 
issues, when a coach has inadequacies and they do not progress, they do not get better, they don't grow, we have this season not only, in my opinion, seen Josh Allen grow significantly, we have seen Sean McDermott and some of the more conservative portions of his nature that I think got fans frustrated on the regular, those have been quelled to some to some degree. And I think you feel even more passionately about that than I am because I'm just satiated. I'm just happy that we go for it on fourth down as often as we do. But I think that you, the information when quantified is more influential for you than just that. Yes. I don't feel like we're talking about this at all. I feel like I'm, are we the only people who are talking about this? We, I, kind of. I mean, not not completely, but I mean, like he, he goes for it on fourth down a lot. Sean McDermott has become Riverboat Sean. In, uh, in rest honor, in, rest in peace, Riverboat Ron. In in honor of Riverboat Ron, who was fired as the head coach of the Carolina Panthers a couple hours ago, he's become Riverboat Sean. And people, I got a strange reaction to my tweet when I said, you know, Sean McDermott's got many flaws, but here's one thing we need to make sure we give him credit for: Duke can design a defense. People took people took strange offense to that. Like I would dare say that Sean McDermott has flaws. Oh my gosh, how dare I? But. Here's one thing that he had a flaw on. He punted on fourth down in a game where the clock was running out in a snow game where a tie causes us to lose out on the playoffs. I called it on Twitter at the time in 2017, a fireable offense. It was terrible. Now, it ended up working out for us because... We ended Joe up, Webb. Joe Webb, because Joe Webb. <laughs> because of Joe Webb. Nothing. But it was a terrible call because we hadn't thus far been able to stop their defense, their offense from getting at least one first down. And if they would have gotten a first down, it would have been potentially over for us. And if we get a tie, we lose. We didn't play to win. We played for the tie in a game we couldn't afford to tie. That kind of thing, we will probably never see from Sean McDermott ever again. Because he's grown past that. And I feel like we need to talk about this because we talk about Josh Allen's development all the time. Sean McDermott's developing as a coach. He's getting better. And that's something I'm here for. Because if you have a good, solid head coach and a good, solid quarterback, you're going to be good for a long time. We're going to be good for a long time. If Sean McDermott is not even great, just good. And if Josh Allen is not even great, just good, we're going to be good for a long time. I I feel very comfortable with what kind of good Sean McDermott is. I feel very, I feel like that's very predictable. Josh Allen's a little bit more up in the air. It's just, the progress isn't stopping. I mean, that's what it comes down to with him, man. Is this the progress... From game one to now, I mean, it has just been step, 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 step. Growth mindset, baby. Yeah, I mean, it's been maybe step one, one step forward, one and a half, like a half step back, step forward, half step. But it has been consistent progress. And goodness, I mean, yeah. We talked about his flaws as a game day coach in this offseason. 
when we mentioned when we went did the entire pod on Sean McDermott and getting into the McDermott masterclass is what we called it. And we got into his head. And we talked about his flaws and failures as a game day coach. And they are there. But we also talked about his growth mindset and his ability to improve and how he views what he is doing as being fluid. And he views skill set in general as being a fluid concept, something that can improve or degrade if you don't work on it. And as such, you and I openly opined that it would be interesting to see if that carried over into game day stuff. Now, he still needs work. Clock management is still a problem. But guess what? Andy Reid never really fixed his problem. But I'll bet you Sean can. Clock management seems to me to be one of those things that it is so situational and the situations can be so drastically different at the end of the first half, at the end of a game, the positions you put yourself in five minutes before the end of the half or before the end of the game that I don't know that anybody's ever like flawless at it. I am of the opinion you need to have a coach for it. Oh, you have a you have a staff person. I, I am of the opinion you should have a specific person for it. Yeah, does anybody do that? Not currently. Not that I know of, but I've been I've been that's something that's been a Bruceism for a while. Yeah, is that, that makes whether sense. that's your offensive quality control coach well, or th- whatever it is? I've been of the it opi- should be someone whose only job is to have the sheets in front of them, perhaps next to the offensive coordinator in the booth, saying here's the appropriate usage. Of the timeouts in this particular scenario. Now, while we're on the subject of timeouts, one of the things that Sean McDermott does do that I don't think people really thought about a lot, and until Tony Romo talked about it during the game, and I'd like to bring it up, and that is when McDermott has oh yeah yeah timeouts yeah, to yeah. burn. Yep, he doesn't waste them. He'll burn them for usage later. So he'll line up in a play. Right, and force you to show he'll him what you're going to do. What you're going to do, and then he'll call a timeout because he's like, "Well, I, got, I mean, I can't take them with me, so <laughs> I'm going to use them now so that I get a free look." Yeah, whenever at your defensive response. When I run, when I run this personnel in this formation, this is the defense you give me. Now I know I will use it in seven minutes. Right. I'll get back. I'll get back to you in the third quarter on it. Yeah. Right. Because he's like, well, I can't. I mean, I can't take him with me. So you might as well use him. That is one thing that Sean McDermott does that I actually really like. Oh yeah. That not super, a lot of coaches do. Super super heady. Because he realizes that there are resources to be used. Now it's about resource allocation. It's a lot like the draft. It's about how do you best allocate your resources. And timeouts are a resource. And if you don't use them, you lose them. There is no award at the end of the season for the coach who ended the most halves with the most timeouts available. So if you're in the first half and you don't need them for whatever reason, let's just go ahead and burn them for that reason. Yeah. Let's show you something wonky and then watch you scramble and call a timeout and go, okay, well, now I know. Yeah. All right. All right. Fair enough. So, Cole Beasley was somebody else that we want to talk I about. I want a Cole Beasley jersey. Yeah, Cole Beasley jersey? He's going to be my he's going to be my next jersey. First off, I think it's appropriate because of me being MC Blowhard. Yeah. When I say Mally, you say boo. Mally. Okay, that my jersey would be that of a rapper. So, I think that's fitting. Secondly, I have been pounding the table for Cole Beasley to get more targets. 
for, I don't know, the entire year? And the fact of the matter is defenses are starting to realize now that you cannot just take away John Brown and call it a day. Miami, after the Miami game, oh man, you know, John Brown, you know, double-digit targets, just ate him for lunch. Oh, all we got to do is take away John Brown. And as Lee Corso would say, not so fast. Not so fast. <laughs> and Cole Beasley, you know, comes out all 5'8", 176 pounds of him, spitting mad bars, going, hey, I'm here too. And I couldn't be happier for him to have a game like that against his old team. But also, Cole Beasley being a more vocal individual than John Brown becomes a very unique ambassador for this franchise for free agents. Because Cole Beasley is a Texas guy through and through. And he comes up to Buffalo and he can tell you that the reason why he came initially was probably because of money. That's probably a good reason why he came. A little bit of lip service that he thought the team was giving him that they would let him do what he wanted sure. to do. Sure, a little bit of lip service. And you know there was, there was some discussion that maybe he turned down the Titans and the Patriots. There was some discussion about that. But he gets here probably because of money. And he gets here. And now when you ask him, he says things like, I'll play here till the wheels fall off. And when you have someone who has seen other teams... And doesn't have a a particular, doesn't have a dog in the fight. He wasn't drafted here. He's not gunning for big money here. He already got his money. He becomes an ambassador for this franchise moving forward for free agents. Oh, free agents, listen to Cole. Here's a great idea for agents. The owner made the team cookies before they went on the flight to an away game. How do you not love this team? Yeah. I defy you to not love this team. We have a quarterback who fumbled the ball, bulldozed a guy, got up, and fist-pumped the world. Our owner bakes cookies for the team, and we have a rapper who's 5'8", 176 pounds. And we have the best training facility in the league. And we have the best training facility in the league. So that when, when the owner says, listen, listen, I know this is a business and we got business decisions to make, but when you're here, we want you and your family to know that you're taken care of. When Kim Pagula is driving with Sean McDermott back to the airport after his interview, talking with his wife about how she's going to help them find houses... This crap matters for free agents. It's like recruiting. It matters in college. Why do you think when they bring recruits on to Ole Miss, all of a sudden, all the attractive women come out of the woodwork to escort these people around campus? Because you're recruiting. That's what you're doing. That's what we're doing, except we're doing with cookies and money and training facilities. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, chicken wings, beef on whack. Yeah, stinger subs. Oh, I need a stinger sub. I could use a stinger. Okay, I could use a stinger. But I'm I'm here for all the Cole Beasley stuff. Yeah. Aside from the on the field stuff, I want a Cole Beasley jersey. So all I want for Christmas is a Cole Beasley jersey, and he's a good player. Cole Beasley and John Brown are both better than anything we had on the roster last year. 
And Evan Silva, previously of Roto World, and now of EstablishTheRun.com, tweeted out the difference in splits between Josh Allen targeting Andre Holmes, Zay Jones, and Kelvin Benjamin versus him targeting everyone else. Maybe Allen got a lot better, and he did. But also, that was Brandon Bean correctly establishing how to help your second-year quarterback get better. Because the Browns organization looked at Baker Mayfield and said, you know what he needs? Odell Beckham. But, you know, we're going to trade away his really, really good offensive lineman to get him, you know, to free up room. Obviously, we traded him for Olivier. They traded him for Olivier Vernon. But he got rid of Zeitler, and they brought in Odell Beckham. And they said, that's going to help him. Brandon Bean looked at Josh Allen and said, we're going to get him a whole new offensive line and a whole new receiving core. That's an example of the organization understanding what to do to help your second-year quarterback. And Cole Beasley is a big part of it. Okay, well, let's let's have a little bit of an uncomfortable conversation. Although, I, I thinking about this ahead of time, knowing that this is something I wanted to talk about, I feel much better after we have been able to establish you have provided at least some context of what potentially could be the thing that was underappreciated about Josh Allen. Not that this is just a flash in the pan and it has no staying power, but there was actually something that perhaps we did not evaluate or appreciate correctly. I say we, I'm talking about people who are, you know, draft evaluators and all that. I mean, the only guy who I can think of that was like a major voice in the draft community that was high on Josh Allen was Mel Kuyper. Which is Which weird. is not normally a great... You don't... That's not yeah. always great. No, and, and also, Mel Kuyper's method of defending Josh Allen was also horrible, and that made it worse. Yeah. Because then the Josh Allen haters, or the Josh Allen disbelievers, or the Josh Allen skeptics like me, were like, oh no. Like, the pro-Josh Allen guys, we got Kuyper? He's the one? Because he says things like... Stats are for losers. The kid won. And then throws out stats like eight seconds later to explain why another quarterback isn't good. And you're like, oh, no, Mel. <laughs> Not, no, Mel. <laughs> Don't. I'm sitting there thinking, Todd, 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 Todd. And Mel Kuyper Jr. Mel, we haven't started yet. Just get warmed up, Robert. Yes. Yeah. That's hilarious. Okay. Okay. Well, here's here's what I wanted to talk about. Josh Allen had a great game. We saw Mega Josh. We felt really good. I feel really good. Not, I'm not going to damper this at all because I think that there is something we can talk about here. But there's also a little bit of a concern about there have been quarterbacks in the recent past and probably in the, in the distant past too who came out, had some good games, had a good stretch – and maybe even took the league by storm a little bit, and then the wheels fell off. They were not who we thought they were. The guy who comes to mind for me the most, and I don't mean this in the polarizing, you know, what he protests way, but Kaepernick. Kaepernick in Fran- in San Francisco, that I mean, that was an entity. He he was he displaced Alex Smith, who had been rather successful with them in Harbaugh and then they went to the NFC championship game and and there were people thinking that Kaepernick and Russell Wilson that was going to be a thing forever absolutely not 
before before Kaepernick lost his job, he played poorly. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's a thing that happened. Now he has a high. I'm not going to comment on his skill set. I think he has a, certainly has the the skill set and the talent to be in the league. That's a whole another. That's a whole another issue. Blake Bortles was a guy who, for at least a short time, people in Jacksonville and around the league, they thought he was the real deal. RG3, this one is a little more complicated because of the knee, but you know, people were thinking that this was this was the new NFL. You had Andrew Luck was representing the traditional style of new NFL, and you had RG3 in DC with Mike Shanahan, and that that was going to be, I mean, it was never going to end. That was just going to be a thing for the next 10 years. Mike Vick in Atlanta. Mike Vick in Atlanta. I I remember thinking, like, this is the most exciting thing I've ever seen. I've never seen a person play quarterback like this. Now, Randall Cunningham maybe did, but that was before my time. I remember thinking that Michael Vick and, and what Atlanta was doing when he had Warwick Dunn and uh, with T.J. Dorsett. Is that who it was? T.J. Duckett. T.J. Duckett. T.J. Duckett. Michigan That's right. State, baby. Yeah. Thunder and Lightning. Well, they, it was mm-hmm. also the Ron Dane and the Tiki Barber thing. They did that too. But they talked about T.J. Duckett being the big back and then Warwick Dunn. And then they had Michael Vick. And I mean, some of his runs and the things that he, the things that he was doing and defenses couldn't stop him. It was incredible. All of these people who I've just named, they came back to earth. Right, at least Michael Vick has had a nice had a nice career. He played elsewhere and, and the dog stuff and all that. I mean, leave that on its own. Michael Vick continued to play and play meaningful football after that. The rest of these guys, I mean, kind of not really. <laughs> okay, so Bills Mafia was not happy at me when we were five and one, and I said that the how and why matters, and how you win games, and how you lose games is important. Because it helps you predict future wins and losses. Well, now you're going to be really happy that I'm wired that way. Because I'm going to read you three stat lines. Ooh, this is another guy too, Trubisky. I'm going to read you Josh Allen from 19, Blake Bortles from 17, and Trubisky from 18. Oh, good. All right, well, I'm glad I fit him in. (laughs) Completions per game. Allen, 18.8. Blake Bortles, 19.7. Trubisky, 20.6. Attempts per game. Allen, 30.5. Blake Bortles, 32.7. Mitchell Trubisky, 31. Yards per game. Josh Allen, 215.9. Blake Bortles, 230.4. Mitchell Trubisky, 230.2. So far, Allen has similar completions, a little bit less attempts, a little bit less yards. Yeah? Okay. Yep. Passing. Touchdowns per game. Josh Allen, 1.3. Blake Bortles, 1.3. Mitchell Trubisky, 1.7. Interceptions per game. Josh Allen, 0.7. Blake Bortles, 0.8. Mitchell Trubisky, 0.9. Very similar. Sacks per game. Josh Allen, 2.3. Blake Bortles, 1.5. Mitchell Trubisky, 1.7. Josh Allen gets sacked a little bit more. It makes sense. Rushing per game. Attempts. Josh Allen, 7.8. Blake Bortles, 3.6. Mitchell Trubisky, 4.9. I think we would know that Allen would run a little more. Rushing per game. Yards, Josh Allen, 35.8. Blake Bortles, 20.1. Mitch Trubisky, 30.1. Oh, wow. Trubisky. Mm-hmm. All right. Josh Allen, touchdowns per game rushing, 0.7. Blake Bortles, 0.1. Mitchell Trubisky, 0.2. Okay. Those are very similar stat lines. 
And this Overall. is this is Allen's this year. This is Allen's nineteen so far. Okay, versus Bortles seventeen and Trubisky, and Trubisky last year eighteen. Trubisky last year. His okay. Trubisky this year is the problem because this is the new hater now. The new the first Allen hater was he hasn't played anybody. Now the Allen hater has evolved because unlike some of us who just go, hey, cool, I must have missed this thing about Josh Allen, like you know me. Instead, some people are like, no, I planted my flag. I will defend this take until the death. No, am I out of touch? No, surely it's the Allen who is wrong. And so they'll they, the argument morphs. They move the goalposts now to, well, yeah, he's having a good year, but they had a good year too. So before it was, he's not really having a good year because he hasn't played anybody. Now he's played somebody, so all of a sudden the DVOA starts to go up for Josh Allen. And now it's, well, you know... The throw-to-throw consistency is not there, was what Pro Football Focus would say. And the stat line, yeah, he's having a good year, but so did Bortles. And so did Trubisky's. So we need to keep an eye on it. Okay, now you're going to really love me. The same people who hated me earlier this year for being a how and why is more important than what guy, now you're going to love me. Because I can tell you, I'm going to help you with your Josh Allen social media apologetics right now. I'm going to help you, Bills Mafia. Does anybody remember Blake Bortles from 17? I feel like I'm taking crazy pills here. Doesn't anyone notice this? I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. Blake Bortles in 17 was one of the most effective garbage time quarterbacks in the history of football. All of that crap was during garbage time. I remember there was some question when Allen Robinson went to the Bears Ironically enough, do you know Allen Robinson was the quarterback for Bortles during 17 and Trubisky during 18? Oh, <laughs> so, the wide receiver? So yeah, he's, yeah. A, he's a common theme here. But I remember I remember that year because Allen Hearns and uh, Allen Robinson, it was the Allen and Allen show. It was Allen the Allen show. Allen and Allen show. That was a big wide receiver. I mean, people thought very highly of that wide yeah, receiver. And they, had, they drafted Marquise Lee, and everyone was like, oh my gosh. Yeah. That this was, this is going to be amazing. Blake Bortles got so much of his statistics during garbage time that year. They were a bad team. The method they were they were a very bad team. And the method by which he accumulated that, he was a fantasy football darling, but this is how you start to separate the fantasy football players, the people who just box score stat from people who actually watch it is yes, that stat line looks similar. The method by which he attained it, I also can't help but notice that the fact that they were down by so much wasn't just because the defense was bad. It was also because Bortles was getting these touchdowns at the end of games instead of at the beginning of games. When you score matters quite a bit. And so Blake Bortles was one of the most effective garbage time quarterbacks ever. When when Allen Robinson left to go to Chicago, one of the questions was not just his health. The other question was, you know, he accumulated a lot of this stats in garbage time. Can he really be an effective number one receiver? That was a legitimate narrative about Allen Robinson when he went to the Bears. Now, let's go to Trubisky in 18. Matt Nagy came around and was lauded for his creativity, being a quarterback whisperer, and being able to manufacture offense. Eventually, You can't manufacture offense for a bad quarterback anymore. At some point, the quarterback's got to make plays. At some point, the quarterback has to be good. Is that because the defense starts taking away some of the things that are easy? Mm -hmm. 
And they start saying, we're going to give you stuff, but we're going to give you stuff we know your can quarterback can't do. So I want to make sure we get this straight. We're comparing garbage time Blake Bortles, okay, and handheld manufactured Mitchell Trubisky to 2019 Josh Allen, who is screaming audibles at the line of scrimmage and is calling sight adjustments to honey hole throws in cover two. The how and why matters. Also, I don't know that you were really seeing at any point in time with with the skeletons in Trubisky's closet, the throws that we've seen from Allen this year, the, ha- the, the handful of these really impressive intermediate throws, I don't watch the Bears intimately, but I don't think we were seeing that stuff. I thought Mitchell played really well on Thanksgiving Day, but Detroit is a horrendous defense. I mean, just... Just horrible. So, Trubisky looked good on Thanksgiving Day. But I'm here to tell you, as someone who is not known for being overly effusive, I think I think it's fair to say that, with Josh Allen. Josh Allen's better this year than Trubisky was last year. We came into this year saying that a statistical improvement to Trubisky 18 levels would be good. And that's fine, statistically. Allen's better than Trubisky was last year. And he's better than Bortles was was in 17. Because the how and the why matter. You can get somebody who shows you the what and puts up those stats in front of your face. And that's fine. You just know they're a fantasy football player at that point. Because I watched Bortles. I watched Trubisky. I earned the right to say that Josh Allen's better than they are. That doesn't mean he's the gap between when they were and franchise quarterback is still notable. So I'm not saying that because he's better than them, he's arrived. I'm saying that I'm more optimistic that Josh Allen could be the guy than I was after Bortles is 17 about Bortles being the guy in Jacksonville. And I was after 18 about, gosh, I called it what, six weeks into the season in 18. I said, Trubisky's not the guy. Nick, Trubisky's not the guy. I still don't think he's the guy. But just because they look similar statistically does not mean that they are. I mean, what Matt Nagy is known for in a positive way is putting his putting his quarterback in a position to succeed. I wouldn't say that Brian Dable's not known for that, but I would also say that we're not known for being for running a Sean McVay, Matt Nagy type offense where we are just manufacturing people open. We are letting Josh Allen run the offense, diagnose the defense, go through his progressions, and and beat teams by just playing quarterback. Here's a question. Does the Bears' offense look better when Chase Daniel's in? Because there are arguments that it does. Does Did the Jacksonville offense look better when Bortles got a, came out and there was some question as to whether or not, at the time... It would have been the Browns would have traded Cody Kessler, Cody Kessler, to the Jaguars, and there was a contingent of people who thought Cody Kessler should play. Is there anybody who thinks that this team would be better if Matt Barkley was a quarterback? Any anybody? Bueller, Bueller, Bueller. Because some of the things that Josh Allen's doing, Matt Barkley just can't do. That's the point. It's not like. 
Brian Dable is manufacturing screen pass layups. Have you seen the screen game with Tariq Cohen and the Bears versus our screen game? Josh Allen is making intermediate honey hole throws to gain huge yardage. On adjusted routes. On adjusted routes. Mitchell Trubisky was throwing four-yard passes to not screw it up to a dynamic screen pass player that is manufactured by an offensive mastermind. It is not the same. Done. Blake Bortles got to play against prevent defense for an entire half because of how bad his team was. It is not the same. And if you think it looks the same, it's because you're focused on the results and you're not focusing on the how and the why you got there. Josh Allen Apologetics, I'm here for you, Bills Mafia. With that, we will take a quick break. We will come right back and then we are going to break down how the Bills can beat the Ravens this Sunday. Stick with us. Welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us for this edition of the Nick and Nolan Show, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm one of your two co-hosts, Nick Bat, along with me, Bruce Nolan. You have got a particular idea of how the Bills should play Lamar Jackson. I do. Now, one of the things that was interesting, and Joe Marino, I think, was the one who said it on his podcast today... I think it was on the Q&A podcast, on the Locked on Bills podcast. He made the comment that Sean McDermott, you know, had said on Monday, I think it was, nobody has cracked the code on this offense. And the conversation was all around how pick your pick, pick your flashy offense that has made come into the league and then didn't last, be it like the Wildcat or Chip Kelly's offense whenever he was at Philadelphia, how you get a little bit of success and then all of a sudden it sounds like the, the defenses can put the clamps on you after a season or most of a season of success. And Sean McDermott acknowledged that there hasn't been anything on tape yet that the, where people have figured out how to defend the Baltimore offense. So let me tell you what I know of the Baltimore offense and then you supplement it. What I know of the Baltimore offense is they will run you over. They will run you over with Mark Ingram. They will run you over with misdirection kind of screen pass sort of stuff. They will run you over with Lamar Jackson, who is an in- incredibly gifted runner. You know, he he is an 11th man where you can literally have 10 blockers, where normally you only have nine. And Lamar is passing the ball well. I hear critiques that he's only passing the ball well in certain areas or in certain ways, so you can add credence to that or not, but that, that's a sentiment that exists. And at the beginning of this year, Greg Roman, as we all would remember from the Rex Ryan days, and a guy who loved the uh, Bill Walsh running schemes of the San Francisco 49ers from way back in the day whenever he was in San Francisco as, a, as an offensive coordinator with Jim Harbaugh, that Greg Roman was going to perhaps really, really reinvent the NFL rushing attack. Wishbone stuff, you know, there were there was a coach from college that runs a particular kind of rushing offense that they invited to training camp that was a that was a big deal, right? Paul Johnson, former Georgia Tech triple option guy. Triple option. So that they were going to just do some really, really freaky stuff. Now, I think they've been a bit more conventional than that. <laughs> 
the fact remains that people just haven't really been able to stop them. I mean, they've lost two games. They lost to Cleveland, and then they lost to Kansas City two weeks in a row. Since then... Eight straight. <laughs> eight straight. So they either figured something out, or nobody has been able to replicate what those teams have what those teams did. But they're putting up a lot of points. They seem very, very, very effective, and they just beat what other teams were talking, or what other people thought perhaps was the best team in the league, or in the running for the best team in the league, in the 49ers. So, what are we dealing with here? Okay. So, the Ravens are fundamentally a power run team that will line up in heavy personnel, two tight ends, three tight ends, and run a lot of zone read and misdirection off of heavy sets. I have a question for you on that. Is the effectiveness of misdirection with heavy set a bit more... Is is the effectiveness more? Because when you say misdirection, what I imagine is that defenders are often reading the blockers, right? Defenders are, are trying to see where the ball's going based on how the blockers behave. So when you've got extra blockers, you have even more guys sending false positives. Is that right? Yes, but what makes the misdirection more effective for them is the speed they have in the backfield. When you have Mark Ingram and Lamar Jackson in the backfield, misdirection hurts worse because being a step out of place costs you 30 yards instead of three. One of the things that makes the Ravens offense so difficult, and this is, I think, is the main thing to take away from the Ravens offense. The thing that makes it so hard to defend is because it's counterculture. So... The NFL is getting smaller and faster and more spread. That's the way that they're getting. And the NFL runs in kind of cycles. And the Baltimore Ravens could be on the cusp of a new cycle. You and I talked about this at the end of last year in a pod that, you know, got 40 listens because it was a Bills backers pod or something. But we talked about how at some point some team is going yeah, to take, I remember this now. You remember this? So At team some point, is going to get all the fat uglies is out get there. all the fat ugly people and go, now that you've devoted your entire roster set to running in space with athletic yeah. wide receivers. Now, now that your middle linebacker looks like Cole Beasley. Right. Now I'm going <laughs> to get three tight ends, each one who weighs 275 pounds, and I'm going to punch you in the face 40 times. And the Ravens are doing that. But the Ravens are doing that with a flair of a running athletic quarterback who can make plays in the intermediate areas of the field. So they have heavy sets, but they also have unbelievable speed at wide receiver with Marquise Brown. They have unbelievable speed at quarterback with Lamar Jackson, and they have two really, really good interior runners in Gus Edwards and Mark Ingram. So if you think about a basic read option dive play, if they go three tight ends, and Marquise Brown out wide, okay? They've got three very solid blocking tight ends. You now, as a defense, cannot go nickel. If you go nickel, you will get run over. You have to be in base personnel or maybe heavier than base personnel as a defense, okay? So you, you can't go nickel. You, you have to have a strong side linebacker on the field. Maybe you go 4-4. Like, that's how heavy they went as an offense. Who would even so, be the 4-4 for us? It would be Lorenzo, and who would be 4? We bring Saran Neal on? We'd bring on Saran Neal at that point, probably. So, big nickel. So, it, yeah, big nickel, except you're not nickel. You're you're in base with Saran Neal. 
So you're swapping out at that point. Who are you taking off? You're taking off what, Levi Wallace? You're taking off Levi Wallace. I see. Okay, go on. So, And I don't even know what that would look like for us, but the fact of the matter is they're forcing you into personnel groupings that teams do not like anymore. Because It doesn't even sound like a unit we practice with. You and I have talked about the fact that you're in nickel as a defense 80 to 85% of the time now. The Ravens are like, I see your nickel, and I'm going to make you get into a personnel grouping that you don't like. You want to go to like video game. Oh, you're in nickel? I'm in goal line. Exactly. I'm in goal line <laughs> offense. That's exactly it. They're maddening the crap out of you. So they force you into a personnel grouping you don't like, okay, that you're not prepared for because 90% of all the other teams in the in the league are going to present to you something where you can go nickel against them. But you can't go nickel against the Ravens or they'll run the ball in your throat. Okay, so now you got all these heavy guys on your on your defense, and now we're going to do read option, okay, and have one of the fastest players in the league at quarterback against all your slow people that you just put on the field to accommodate for the big heavies. That's a problem. How do you solve this problem? There's an in, it's a really interesting. Let's ignore scheme for a second, okay? Because there's two parts of solving this. You have to solve it with scheme, and you have to solve it with horses. Let's just ignore scheme for a second. You don't have the horses. You don't have a strong side linebacker because teams don't invest significantly in that position because you don't have to because you're a nickel 80% of the time. So you don't have a dynamic strong side linebacker who's fast enough to compete. Who's 275 pounds or 270 pounds and can take on a huge linebacker and also fast enough to deal with the fact that you have speed on the edge. You don't have that person. That person doesn't exist anymore. We have effectively made that person extinct through the way that we've handled the NFL personnel groupings thus far. This is why the Ravens give you problems. So let's ignore scheme for a second, and let's just talk about personnel groupings. They're going to bring in heavies. They're going to force you into base or heavier defense, and then they're going to bring in speed at the quarterback position, which you don't have a choice. You, you You have to have a quarterback. You have to accommodate for that. So now they brought your slowest guys on the field, and they have your slowest guys chasing around your fastest guy. Sounds brilliant. This is a problem. And Greg Roman is going to get a head coaching job. The fact that Rex Ryan... So I yelled about this, not with you. You and I weren't friends at this time. I yelled about this with my wife. I said, I would have preferred if Greg Roman was the head coach and Rex Ryan was the D.C., as opposed to Rex Ryan coming in as the head coach and Greg Roman coming in the offensive coordinator. And then Rex Ryan fired him because he's a moron. So, anyway, I, dig- I digress. Greg Roman's going to be a head coach this next year, and deservedly so, and it's just to make Rex look even worse, which I'm all for. But that's the personnel problem with the Ravens. Then you add to the fact that if you go heavy and you bring safeties in the box, you have Marquise Brown on the outside who is one of the fastest players in the league and can beat you over the top for touchdown. So now you have big in the inside, you have speed on the outside, and you have speed at quarterback. So help us. We have a problem. Help us. Okay, so I have a theory. I'm not saying I have a silver bullet. No one has a silver bullet. If I had a silver bullet, I'd be a defensive coordinator. Let's assume for a second that we're forced to scheme. I saw something watching the Raiders and the Chiefs, ironically enough, okay? Because the Raiders' offense 
you could not possibly confuse the Raiders offense for the Ravens offense. John Gruden and Greg Roman are slightly different when it comes to offensive philosophies. But I saw a, a defensive call from the Chiefs and I went, huh, I, um, I think that could help. And I'd like to introduce you to this concept. We don't have a tendency to go super deep into X's and O's on this pod because it's not really something that's good to hear via audio. It's better to see visually. And this is not a visual medium. So I'm going to do my best. So I'd like to start with this. Taron Johnson might not be on the field much. So let's talk personnel first. Saran Neal is going to be a big part of what we do here. Saran Neal needs to be able to play outside corner, I think. Because I think the chances are that Saran Neal and Lorenzo Alexander could end up being on the field simultaneously. Those two players, Saran Neal and Lorenzo Alexander, could be the key to us personnel-wise stopping the Ravens. So let's start from personnel grouping. If they go 2-3 tight end, I am completely okay taking Kevin Johnson and Levi Wallace off the field and having the two outside corners because if they go three tight end, they only have one receiver. So put Tredavious White on him, bring Saran Neal in and have Saran Neal, Lorenzo Alexander, Tremaine Edmonds, Matt Milano, safeties, Trey White, defensive line. I'm cool with that. I am. From a scheme standpoint, I'd like to introduce you all, if you haven't been introduced to it thus far, to a concept of called cover seven. Now, you've heard me talk about cover one, cover two, cover three in relation to how many safeties are responsible for the deep part of the field. Cover seven is a presentation of cover one to the offense. But instead of having a deep safety, you have your eighth man in the box and your deep presenting safety specifically drop into zones to bracket intermediate routes in robber coverage. So nobody's over the top. Nobody is over the top. Man underneath? So you're going to have man on one side, okay? Typically you have man on one side, so that will be Tredavious White would be that side, okay? On the other side, you have a bailing deep, deep corner, okay? So instead of being man on that side, it's bailing deep zone on that side. So it's Saran Neal, right? And at the snap, he would just bail out. Right and handle a deep third, okay, almost like a cover one, but instead of being in the middle of the field, you're along the sideline. Your eighth man in the box, which could be a safety or it could be Saran Neal, depending on how you want to do it. Your eighth man in the box and your present your presented deep safety. So whether that's the both the safeties or one of Saran Neal and one of the safeties, whatever that is, you're presenting eight man in the box to the offense. So you have another guy there for run defense, but his primary responsibility in pass coverage is to drop much like he would if it was a zone blitz he is going to drop off to bracket intermediate and in breaking routes so the reason why i i want to talk about this coverage is because lamar jackson hasn't been that great of a deep passer this year and if he's going to beat me if lamar jackson beats us because he connected on four really deep balls beating tredavious white in man coverage I will live with that. Like If that's the way you want to beat us, I'm okay with that. It'll be the first time they've won that way all year. Right. I'm okay with that. What I'm not okay with is us presenting seven in the box and getting beat up six yards at a time 
And I'm not okay with Lamar Jackson to the tight ends over the middle of the field over and over and over again on every third and re- third and unmanageable. The idea is to present eight in the box, to be able to stop the run, to get them into third and unreasonables, third and passings, third and sixes or so. And then when they go to their intermediate tight end routes, you have the opportunity for turnovers with brackets backpedaling from your eighth man in your box and coming up from your deep presented safety. So your safety, you look like you have single high. But it's not single high, right? It's not a deep zone. That safety's coming up. So that safety is now dropping down and taking a huge risk. The huge risk to this defense is vertical shots. You will get toast because you can get toast on a seam route because that safety is going to come up. And if you get like a double move from a tight end right over the top, you're in trouble. A vertical route on the outside, you're in trouble. You've got nobody. That Tredavis White has no help in this scenario. But you have to decide what you're willing to give them. And what I'm willing to give them is vertical shots down the field, on the outside specifically. But I want to win the turnover battle. I want to keep eight men in the box. And I want to make Lamar Jackson throw the ball outside the numbers vertically to beat me. Okay, so this is your offensive. I'm just going to create a hypothetical situation here. If they're in this... This three tight end, one wide receiver set. This is a common set that the Ravens use. Common enough to us for us to talk about it, yeah. Okay. So in there, if they're in this set, you want to put Saran Neal on the field and Lorenzo Alexander on the field. Levi Wallace is gone, so you've got your front four, any of the four linemen arrangements you want. Then you've got Matt Milano, Trey Edmonds, and Zoe Alexander as your linebackers. Mm-hmm. Then you've got Trey White on the outside. Mm-hmm. You've got Jordan Poyer and Micah Hyde. Yep. And you've got, instead of Levi Wallace or Kevin Johnson, you've got Saran Neal. Correct. Okay. You have four linemen. You yep. have three linebackers. You have two corners, but one of them is Saran Neal. Yeah. You have two safeties. And hypothetically, Saran Neal's not out wide. He's he's tight. Because right. He's tight because the, the tight yeah. end's there. Okay. And they're, they're probably not going to flex that tight end wide. They don't. They don't do that a lot. Okay, so then you've got Saran Neal bailing out deep at the snap. For, if, if it's a pass play, For yes. a deep zone coverage. You've got Micah Hyde, if he's the one who looks like he's the single high safety, you've got him coming down and playing robber coverage. What is Jordan Poyer doing? So in this scenario, right, in this scenario, Jordan Poyer is down by the line of scrimmage. He's playing run support. Yeah, so at this point, you have essentially nine in the box in this particular scenario. You have nine in the box because now, if they flex a tight end out wide, that person who's going to go with them, you can make a decision as to whether or not that's going to be Poyer or whether or not that's going to be Saran Neal. Now, if... if, But if they bring three tight ends in and one Marquise Brown wide, we should have nine in the box. What if they have two tight ends and two wide receivers? So they have two wide outs on each side. Are you putting Saran Neal on that other wide receiver? Yes. And that's the, and that's the weakness they'll exploit. Because what I'm not okay with them doing, right? If they go if they go two tight end, two wide outs, I'm completely okay with Saran Neal because what they'll do is they'll pull that wide receiver in tight, right? And I want somebody in there who's a better run defender. But if I have Levi Wallace in there, they're going to run at they're going to run at him and they're going to they're, they're going to pull that receiver in tight. And bring Levi Wallace into the formation and bowl him the F over. So, who's their second wideout? So, here 
are their leading receivers. Mark Andrews, their tight end, number one, who I have on my fantasy team, by the way. Marquise Brown, Nick Boyle, also a tight end. Willie Sneed, Hayden Hurst, also a tight end. Mark Ingram, Seth Roberts, Miles Boykin, in that order. So it goes tight end, wide receiver, tight end, wide receiver, tight end, running back. Who's the second wide receiver then? Willie Sneed. Willie Sneed. Yeah. So if Willie Sneed is the guy on the outside who they bring in, and Saran Neal is covering Willie Sneed, is that a very bad situation for us? In I that don't think case? it's a great situation, but it's this is about minimizing risk. Do I think that's a good matchup? No, I don't think it's a good matchup. But I like it better than the alternative. I mean, the situation is basically you could give him safety help all day. You could. If they're if they pass, I mean, mm-hmm. if they run, then you know that when they bring Willie Sneed in tight, they can run at Saran Neal if they want. But he's not the same body or the same tackler that Levi Wallace is. No offense to Levi Correct. Wallace, it's a, just a different, it's just a totally different animal. So, if they leave him out wide and they pass, you could always just have Jordan Poyer or Micah Hyden support. Mm-hmm. You could, and this is going to rely on the. This is going to rely on the defense to be communicating. And more importantly, it's going to rely on their defense to keep assignment football. Do your job. Because the Ravens are going to throw a lot of things at you that looks weird. And one of the issues that I want to talk about is how teams have been defending the Ravens thus far this year and how frustrated I get when I watch it. So Urban Meyer is widely discussed as being the inventor of the spread option the zone read spread option offense, right? And that's a lot of what conceptually Greg Roman is doing now. And conventional wisdom when you face a defense, sorry, when you face an offense like that is that you need to take away the dive play first. Take away the dive play first. The same logic comes when you're playing a triple option team like Navy. You say, okay, we're going to take away the dive play first. Here's the problem. That's using a 2009 rule book against a 2019 offense. Lamar Jackson isn't Alex Smith. Lamar Jackson isn't Tim Tebow. Lamar Jackson is more dangerous than the dive play. So you shouldn't sell out to stop the dive and get your knickers pulled down by Lamar Jackson running for 16 yards a clip when he pulls it on his own read. You need to have your job be done. If your job is to play the quarterback, play the quarterback. It doesn't matter what he does. It doesn't matter if he fakes a handoff to Aunt May. (laughs) It is not relevant. Take the quarterback. And so... When you get flashy looks and a lot of misdirection, it's sometimes it's hard. It's hard to do your job. And this is where you have optimism that Sean McDermott and the type of person he is, the do your job, discipline, stay your... That kind of thing gives you optimism that perhaps you can maybe solve this problem. But solving it schematically is only part of the issue. You still have to have the horses. Guys, we can solve it schematically and Lamar Jackson can still burn us for a 40-yard touchdown run because Lamar Jackson is a special athlete. You and I had the discussion about RPOs 
And you were like, well, if it puts all these defenders in, like, what do you do? Right. And we talked about how you can try to manipulate the quarterback into making the wrong move as a defender if you know you're the conflict defender. But a lot of this just comes down to whether or not you got the bodies. Do you have the horses? And it's going to be interesting to see if we've got the horses because we can solve it schematically and still not have the horses. I will be very interested, win or loss, to watch the All-22 back this game to see how we schematically did it and whether it was a win or a failure of scheme or whether it was a win or a failure of personnel. Because the Ravens are asking you to do something that a lot of teams just don't have the horses to do. And I mentioned the statement about conflict defenders, right? Putting a defender in conflict, taking advantage of those defenders. A lot of times those are linebackers. Tremaine Edmonds needs to bring it. Matt Milano needs to bring it. The four most important players to this game, period, are Matt Milano, Tremaine Edmonds, Lorenzo Alexander, Saran Neal. I truly believe that. If they play well, we got a shot. It ain't going to be easy for all the things I just said. All right. Quick programming note for everybody as we head out for today. Wanted to let you know that next week we are actually going to be dropping a day later than normal. Uh, For some scheduling reasons, Bruce and I can't get together on our normal Tuesday night, so we're going to get together on Wednesday night. We will drop on Thursday, and I believe there will be another pod from from the channel. The Mafia Mavens, we believe, are also going to be dropping on that day. So... For what it's worth, that's whenever we're going to come out. Apologies to anybody who likes us on Wednesday. Just isn't going to work out that week. We will be back with you, though, and we will deliver the same content to you on Thursday. Second of all, as we get ready for for the big big game this weekend, a game that, uh, wow, if we pull it off, talk about the excitement. I mean, that uh, just gets you a little bit charged up, if you know what I'm saying. So, <laughs> ah, we'll see what happens. But as we all get ready, I just I just want to give you a little bit of word of warning. Keep this I in mind as we go into this like weekend. Okay, just girl. just remember this one thing. I like a do the cha cha.